Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People. We're still in our series of the 1944 films nominated for Best Picture at the 17th Academy Awards held in 1945. For this episode, because I'm technically hosting and I feel the need to include a snappy introductory segue, we're not necessarily going with either TJ or but TJ or Josh want to uh, go in our, in our discussion, but rather we'll be going my way. Ah. Uh, that's right. A musical comedy starring Bing Crosby from 1944, directed by Leo McCary. Uh, instead of asking or jumping right into asking our, our histories or whether we'd seen the film before, I want to quick get a synopsis and then let's loop back and discuss our histories. Um, for those listening... Uh, Is it not... easy to surmise this movie, though? I'm sorry? Is it easy to surmise this movie? I think so. Okay, I go for it. I just let's go. I want to jump in. Let's do a quick synopsis. Go over it um, for the listeners, just so you're aware of what we're talking about here. This is uh, going my way, starring Bing Crosby as the easygoing, informal, amiable father Chuck O'Malley, who is transferred to Saint Dominic's, a parish in New York City, with instructions from the bishop to oversee day-to-day operations of the parish. Transfer without- from where? East St. Louis, we'll get there. Woo! I want to talk about. Let's I go. do want to talk about that because uh, his St. Louis Browns jackets, uh, it, it plays a big role in the movie. Dude, his brown sweatsuit that he wears in the first act, hell yeah, man! I would I mean, be one of those. I would buy one of those for sure. Yeah. This is this may very well be the most significant film the Browns like. This might even be the most significant artifact involving the St. Louis Browns. Let's be and honest. And they lost the World Series this year, so. And I know you're halfway through your synopsis, but another movie that came out this year that I recently watched was Lifeboat. And in Lifeboat, they look at the newspaper and it talks about the St. Louis World Series. And then there's a short conversation about, no, the team to watch this year is those St. Louis Browns. And I'm like, what? A team to not watch this year is St. Louis anybody. Uh, okay. well, well, 19- this, the season will be over by the time this comes out, so maybe we'll have made a playoff run in the second half. <laughs> just, just shout out. Fun fact: Does anybody know who the general manager of the 1944 St. Louis Browns was? Branch Rickey. No, it was Bill uh, DeWitt Sr. No oh. fucking way. Wow. Father of the current owner oh of the St. Louis Cardinals. Wow, the last time he spent money. Interesting. <laughs> it was so, more time, TJ. <laughs> having moved, having moved from East St. Louis, we got Father Chuck. He's now in New York City working at St. Dominic's, and his job is to oversee day-to-day operations of the parish without letting on to the senior pastor, played uh, by a very curmudgeonly and and traditionalist uh, Barry Fitzgerald uh, as Father Fitzgibbons. And so, in this parish. The film is depicting the clash between the younger Father O'Malley and the older Father Fitzgibbons, not only in how they operate the parish, but how they interact with the parishioners. And throughout the film, we see O'Malley interacting with various parishioners as well as some of his friends. And along the way, we, of course, get plenty of breakout into song. And there's plenty of, of musical numbers because, of course, you've got a movie with Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby, yes. You've got to have some moments where people are singing. There's even a choir of boys. There's a, a kind of random sub-story about a runaway teen girl falling in love with a 20-something money lender. It's there's very strange. There's, a, there's an opera singer. Um, we'll get into all of that, but it's basically about Bing Crosby coming in kind of to, to shore up the, the I guess, spirit of St. Dominic's and try to save it. 
uh, for the long term because St. Dominic's is unfortunately uh, in peril of, of being foreclosed upon. By the greedy mortgage lenders. That's right. Yes, the the ever greedy mortgage lenders. Uh, who I I my understanding every time I've seen this movie is that he is a parishioner. It's just interesting. He's seeking to possibly foreclose on his own parish, but that that's beside the point. Um, let's jump in and talk about whether we've seen this before. Uh, Josh, let's go to you first. What's your experience with this film? Uh, hadn't heard of it before you picked this year for us to discuss. So, um, uh, certainly a new one. I hadn't even like if you if you'd asked me what won Best Picture in 1944, I'm not sure what, what I would have said, but I I definitely hadn't heard of this movie before. TJ, uh, I what about you? I had heard of it. I had not seen it. Um, I knew I, I didn't know the year, but I knew it was a Best Picture winner, and that Bing Crosby was in it. Um, in my head, it was a Christmas movie, and maybe it kind of is, but yeah, it's, it was it, like much more of a Christmas movie in my head than it ended up being. Um, and it's not at all a Christmas movie, is it? Like, it, no, but like, kind of. <laughs> the film the film ends on at Christmas Eve mass, but that's it. That's the only relation to Christmas. Okay, because um, it's snowing as he walks away at the end of the picture, and. Uh, yeah, my wife actually asked me this when we watched it last week. Um, I've seen this. I've seen this. I don't know how many times, maybe six or really? seven times over the years. Really? Yeah. yeah. I okay. I saw this for the first time probably when on, on TCM or something twenty years ago. My parents showed it to me. Maybe even more. Um, my parents quite like Bing Crosby. I like Bing Crosby, and I have a DVD copy. So uh, my wife likes the movie. We've watched it a few times. Um, she asked me. She put that exact question to me though, TJ. Is this a Christmas movie? And I, because I never considered it one, even though technically it does have. It, it has. Well, I think it has the spirit of something like a. It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it does. And so I think that's why. Like it, this feels like something that comes on TV and is just kind of very easy to watch. Like whenever it's on, you know. Yes. Um, and yeah, I have more on that later. I think. Okay. Yeah, which I would love to get to because that's exactly my original experience with this film is before I owned a DVD copy, it's just one of those, if I caught it on TCM or AMC or something, I might leave it on if I was just looking for something to put on. Well, then uh, let's just do it now then. Can, can I just talk about this now? Sure. How it's, I, I noticed it's very episodic. Yeah. And one thing I did this time that I think helped me enjoy the movie more, because um, Constantly on this, talk, on this podcast, I'm talking about if I'm watching a movie for the first time, I constantly am asking, what is this, right? And I feel like that like inhibits my enjoyment sometimes. So this time, I read the Wikipedia plot summary before I put the movie on, like several days before I put the movie on. So like it kind of percolated or whatever. And like as I was reading the plot summary, I'm like, this seems like a list of events <laughs> that seem vaguely connected or not. Mm-hmm. And um, as I was watching the movie, I, I it, it's, it hangs together a little bit better than the Wikipedia plot summary might uh indicate but it is kind of like pretty vignette you know pretty episodic you know here's carol james over here who's a singer and also with ted haynes jr here's the choir boys over here here's uh the opera singer over here kind of as you alluded in the opening synopsis and um i think movies like this play well on tv Episodic movies by the nature of TV with commercial interruptions usually play well on TV. Yep. My contention is that the reason Shawshank Redemption is as successful as it is, in addition to being a really great movie, is it's also pretty episodic and therefore built 
to be rerun on TNT and AMC all the time. So it's, you know, oh, here's the rooftop sequence. Here's the Tommy sequence. Here's the Brooks on the outside sequence. Here's the library sequence. So like when you're watching on TV, like it's broke, it's broken up into chunks very nicely. And I think this also would probably be broken up into chunks very nicely if it were to air on TV, which it sounds like that's how you experienced it a lot of the time. Yeah. Now, it's interesting you bring that up because, of course, television was not in the minds of, of Larry McCary when he made the film. But to your point, it does play that way nowadays if it's screening. TCM doesn't usually include commercials. But I've seen this on, like I said, back when AMC used to actually show old movies and probably a couple of other networks. And to TJ's point, I have seen it frequently pop up sometime around the holiday season as a film they just put on. And I know that Leo McCary did not have t- TV in mind when he made it right, because yeah, sure. TV didn't exist yet. However, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I wasn't there, but I think like pre-1960 or so, in movie theaters, people would just kind of like come in and out while the movie was on. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't necessarily come in at the start of the movie and watch the end. You would just like go in at whatever. And the Which reason I know that my is mind. because like, yeah. it does. Yeah. Which I think but, I know where you're going with. The reason how you, why you know. Psycho. Yes. The reason I know is because of Psycho. Uh, in 1960, Alf, good old Al Hitchcock had like an ad campaign where he said, please don't come in in the middle of the movie. Please only come in at the start of the movie because he wanted to preserve the twists and turns of Psycho. And so because of that ad campaign, apparently before that, you would just kind of come in and, want, and you know catch the later 50 minutes of going my way. Or, and then the next day you'd come in again and watch the first 35 minutes or something. So it is, you could might possibly experience it in an episodic fashion. If you so chose that was kind of how like people went to the movies back then. That's yeah, why my it, dad still watches speaks... movies. <laughs> not, not at the theater, but just, you know, yeah, but it, it does speak to the cost factor, right? Like back then, I mean, when, when our, would be our grandparents were, were younger when they were our age, it didn't cost very much to go to the movies. So you could theoretically, if, Hey, you know, Let's just pop into the movie theater. Particularly on hot days, movie theaters were generally cooler. Yeah. People would pop in in the middle of a movie potentially just to get cool. And hey, you want to you want to watch the rest of this movie? You have to go back and watch the beginning. Well, let's come back tomorrow and watch the beginning. Yeah. So it, it, a very real, a very good point. Very real. Uh, uh, strange kind of a, a breakdown of how this film. Works. All I'm saying is like it's it it felt very episodic to me, and so it kind of feels like it's it it plays well on TV, but also might have played well for people just kind of coming in and out of theaters back in the 40s, which is how people in the 40s went to movies. Which, to your point, uh, I mean, let, let's talk about it real quick. This film did immensely well at the box office for the time. It did, it did six and a half million dollars at the box office, which is a lot. It's a lot in 1945. It's the biggest hit of the year. It's plenty of people going to see it. Um, so to Josh's point, it'd be interesting. I, we don't have the stats on that. How many people were flitting in and out of this movie just, you know, at any point during the film? Um, who were watching it in, in basically parts, multiple different uh, viewings? So it might speak to how well this film did, the fact that this film plays so well watching it interrupted. Um, because it doesn't 112, 112 million dollars is the inflation of that's the, that's the equivalent office, that's I think. yeah that's a decent that seems lower than i thought but do you think a good chunk of change do you think that's on the strength of bing crosby stardom do you think that's on the strength of people really love musicals back then 
Um, do you think that well, was Catholic churches bussing people to uh, that last I, not real. Personally, I think it's Bing Crosby, which I do want to come. So too. I do want to come back to in just a moment because mm-hmm. um, I want I want to get there. But I want to start actually by discussing the Academy Awards, uh, if we can, sure. because. Yeah. Uh, this film, of course, is the Best Picture winner of 1945. We've alluded to it in the prior two episodes. Um, but for 1944 films, this is it. This is the one that actually wins the top prize. And not only does it win Picture, it wins seven Oscars. It wins Director for Leo McCary. It wins Actor for Bing Crosby. It wins Supporting Actor for Fitzgerald. Another An extra note for him in just a moment, because we're going to have to discuss the Oscars and Fitzgerald. Um, it wins adapted screenplay. It wins a category that no longer exists anymore called motion picture story, which <laughs> went to Leo McCary for having literally drummed up the idea. It's a category that was given that's out a for weird category. That is a weird. Yeah, category. it's a category that's effectively for what we would today refer to as a treatment, as opposed to the screenplay. Mm. And, best best and, pitch meeting. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Which would have gone to James Cameron in 1986 for Alien. Yes, uh, had yes. That still been around. And that's a, that should be a Alien legacy award sign. for sure. Like that's a legacy award. It it, it it's a it's a category that it, I don't think it existed at the very beginning of the Academy. I, I, if I recall, it it was I think brought about in like the 30s or something. It only lasts into the, like the mid 50s. So it doesn't have too much longer to go before they decided to, to get rid of it. Um, it. This film, though, also wins uh, Song, and it's not the one people might think of. It's not Going My Way, which is literally the so- uh, one the of the titular songs. titular song. Yeah. It's, it's Swinging on a Star, which is the little ditty he sings with the choir boys in front of the... Uh, that that wins over the the music publisher, which which contextually in the movie is the like this is the dumb light one that'll sell. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That is not, exactly. not only not only did it win best song at the Oscars, it was number one in the Billboard charts for nine weeks. So so the movie's nine like weeks, it here's, was number one. Here's the deep heartfelt one, and they're like, we we don't want any of that shit. Give us that radio hit. <laughs> <laughs> That's that is I. We're going to have to discuss this more because it feeds into something that is mentioned during the film. Yeah. The fact that Schmaltz isn't selling this season. And this movie proves that that is a <laughs> load of bullshit. Because this movie yeah. is selling it in just is it, piles. Is it on, is it on thick? Yeah. Um, it, the film is also nominated for cinematography for black and white film. Doesn't win. It's also nominated for film editing. And it's also nominated for another Best Actor nomination for Barry Fitzgerald. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, he wins for supporting actor. He is to date the only person to ever be nominated for in both categories for playing the same character in the same film. Uh, how, do we know how that happened? Yes. So <laughs> at the time, which is this is true of even today, the actors branch gets to nominate a performance, an actor and their performance. The rules stipulate now, after Barry Fitzgerald, they 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 basically prohibited you can't have uh, the double nomination like this. At the time, though, there was nothing that stated, well, it has to be either or, one category or the other. And so as long as, in Barry Fitzgerald's case, as long as you meet the threshold in a given category, you're one of the five nominees. And he managed to he managed to get nominated by enough of his peers in the Academy to be 
<laughs> meet the threshold in both the acting category and the supporting category. You know what? This probably happened recently with Juice and the Black Messiah, too. I was just going to say that. that you, yeah. Because if you remember, Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya both got nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah. Even though they're kind of co-leads, I think. But um, I can't remember, like, where the who should have been where, but, like, the thought was they both received votes in both lead and supporting, but they both also had enough votes to get nominated. They just both had more votes in supporting than lead, so if they I, both went supporting. But. If I remember that film well enough, I, I think the thought was Kaluuya was supporting and Lakeith Stanfield was lead because he's he's... I think he has more screen time, but also he's the Lynn's character of the movie. Yeah, he's, he's, he's the, the Nick character. Yeah, yeah. He's the Nick Carraway to the Great Gatsby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, mm-hmm. but. Yeah the the rule the rule still function. The, the rule was that they had to add a rule to prohibit somebody being able to actively be nominated in both categories. That said, today they will look at one: can you meet the threshold in a given category? If you can be, if you can meet the threshold in both categories. They simply go with the one that has the larger percentage. Right. And the other one they'll throw out. I thought you were going to say it's other nominations were four nominations for best original score since there's like 35 nominees in that year. (laughs) No, it's not. It's not there. (laughs) Going my way. Not present. Which is strange. Second week in a row. There's there's like literally 20 nominations, right? And it's not there. Um, uh, so Swinging on a Star was number one in the Billboard charts for nine weeks, and it, it, it charted for 28 weeks. Wow. Uh, to Ra Lu Ra Lu Ra, uh, the Irish Lullaby song, was on the charts for 12 weeks and peaked at number four. And The Day After Forever and Going My Way also charted. So four songs on this soundtrack were in the Billboard Top 100, including one being number one for nine weeks. No. So people fucking loved this movie, dude. Yeah, the songs with it too. People schmaltz schmaltz sell, and I think they under they under they they undervalued just how much people would like this stuff. That's not true, actually. They spent all the money, and Paramount is is literally pushing this film. Um, we mentioned two two weeks ago, two episodes ago. Um, Double Indemnity is produced by the same production company. Paramount is actively campaigning more attention more they're spending more money and trying is spending more advertising dollars on going my way both are released early summer of 1944 uh and this is the feel-good one this is the one that's going to hopefully draw people in and coming back to what tj mentioned earlier we were talking about whether or not bing crosby is the draw let's get into the cast a little bit and talk about what i what i i jokingly mentioned in uh, my outline that i sent over to you the bing of it all which TJ's got some thoughts, I think, about I, I, as a phrase. What, what is with this, like, where did this phrase come from? Why are people using it? It's been what around it, for a long time, dude. But it's like, or maybe it's that thing where, like, you see a word for the first time and you're like, I've never seen this word before, and you see it four times the next week. I feel like this phrase, particularly from the two of you, ever since we started doing this thing, you know, the podcasting <laughs> of it all, I'm like, what? what is that? What does it mean? It seems so vacuous. I'm just befuddled but it's a catch it's a catch-all phrase for but it well, adds it, it for you it adds nothing because like you, you could asked say, me instead of just googling it yourself you could say let's discuss bing crosby do you get anything else by saying let's discuss the bing crosby of it all does that does that add it or is it just rhetorical it well, kind of i think gives bing Crosby like it's as, it's as if bing crosby is like a larger discussion topic not just saying his name i think 
I think that adds way Well, then could you be more specific and say, like, let's discuss the importance of Bing Crosby in this film? Well, that's more loquacious than the Bing Crosby of it all. I'm into brevity. Brevity is the soul of wit, as Bill Shakespeare once said. Yeah, and then he wrote Hamlet, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just for the record, Andy Bobra was a writer on Community, and they use this phrase in Community, by the way, which was 12 years ago, so it's not like this is a new phrase, and it predates Community by a good bit as well. He said that the X of it all is an annoying phrase that had started creeping into business speak, particularly in the meetings we had with executives. Uh, typically in the process of making the show, we need to address the Bob Greenblatt of it all, etc. What are you guys doing about the budget of it all? It was super annoying to us, and so we, we made fun of it. And so they made Annie Edison say it in an episode of Community. I swear I'm not the only person that has to be like, where did this come from? So if anybody listens to this podcast and you were also like, what what's up with the of it all, of it all, please write in and let me know I'm not crazy or that I am crazy. No one's going to write in. No <laughs> I, one's going to write in. I invite, I invite you to. Okay. <laughs> Well, the Bing Crosby of it all, yes. Ken, the floor is yours. Yeah. Look, Bing Crosby is unequivocally the reason this film does so well, both at the box office and in in response, in, in the awards response, in the attention it gets, in the praise it gets, the longevity it has. Um, because was this his only Oscar? Yes. This was his only Oscar win. Okay. Um, wow. And at the time, he is it. He's the biggest star on the planet. The first multimedia star per Wikipedia. Yeah, he was a radio star. He, he was he was huge in radio. He was huge in record sales. He was huge in film. And at the time, he is the biggest, arguably, in all three mediums. This is two years removed from Holiday Inn and his recording of White Christmas, which is still to this day the best-selling single album of all time, um, singles album. Uh, no, nothing has ever sold more. No single song has ever sold more physical copies than that. His recording. Um, he's the most popular star as far as polls go at the time. He's one of the highest mm-hmm. paid stars. He's got investments all over Hollywood. Um, and it, it it's just an added chapter, I guess, in our ongoing discussion. Particularly, we discussed it throughout 1985 with Out of Africa and Witness. But this idea of an actor versus a movie star. And while Ben Crosby wins the Oscar here for Best Actor, and this is the only Oscar he wins, there's don't, there's no question Ben Crosby is a movie star, first and foremost. Oh, yeah. He is a movie yeah, star, yeah. and this movie is a vehicle for Ben Crosby. Um, hence the fact that it is technically a comedy drama musical, the musical being the fact that Ben Crosby is in it and he has to sing. You have to fit in songs. Re- really no, no re- textual reason to have songs in this movie besides the fact that you have Bing Crosby in the lead role. Which I, which I have to say something I liked about it because I don't really care for musicals. And mm-hmm. a big reason being like, I know I'm going to sound really stupid and I don't care, but I have like a, a, a granular issue with just the genre of people just bursting out singing. Um, I just, it, like it's dead on arrival for me. In this movie, I felt like even though you could go, yeah, why is there an opera singer in this? Oh, yeah, kind of just because it's a musical. I did feel like the songs were fairly motivated by like oh, the, yeah. the diegesis of the movie. And I was surprised oh, sure. by how how few songs there were in the first half of the movie. I was like, I might be I able agree. to actually yeah, yeah. get through this. Um, I, spe- I was expecting more as well, yeah. yeah. But to your point, like no, no, no one just inexplicably bursts into song like they do in Greece and West Side Story etc they there is like as you said there's a reason every time someone starts singing like they they know that they're singing if that makes sense yes and yeah well yeah it's connected to 
most of the songs, I don't say all of the songs because I do want to come back to the Carol James and Ted Haynes Jr. storyline because that it's that's the one part of this film that bothers me, I think, maybe the most. Um, besides that sub-story, most of the songs in this film are directly connected with the plot. You're asking why there's an opera singer in here. Well, she's friends with, with Chuck, Father Chuck, and later on, she's going to help the church make money. So we've got to bring her in here, and let's might as well introduce her. By the way, the, the opera singer we're referring to, Jenny, uh, she's played by Riza Stevens, who at the time is one of the more acclaimed uh, baritone, uh, or not, excuse me, not baritone, mezzo-sopranos, I'm thinking of. She gets to Carmen, she's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm big. Riza Stevens, though, she's a mezzo-soprano <laughs> with the uh, Metropolitan Opera in New York, and she is one of the leading opera singers in new york for about 20 years from the 40s into the early 60s um she's very well respected she she kind of she didn't think very much of film she didn't do a whole lot of film um but she's in this film and she her most acclaimed performance on uh, in the opera world is in carmen which is why they included that sequence or that scene in the movie from carmen her performing in it um, a fun fi- uh, a fun little side fact I learned about Riza Stevens a few years ago um, that I wanted to bring up. Uh, her husband was rather savvy with publicity, and so in 1945, just the year after this movie was made, uh, he convinced Lloyds of London to insure her voice for one million dollars, and then tipped it off tipped off that information to the newspapers. Um, mm. 20th Century Fox subsequently insured Betty Grable's legs for a million dollars after that. And if anybody knows anything about Lloyds of London, they're now most famous for insuring celebrity body parts. This is yeah. something that they do and have done ever since. So we have Riza Stevens to thank for that. Her husband uh, decided to gain a little uh, gain a little publicity for his wife and uh, and Lloyds in the process. Um, but she's in this film, and I do want to talk about her relationship with Chuck because it's one of my favorite elements of the film. But back to Bing for just a moment because. You can't undersell, I I think, just how big a star he was. For anybody listening, we're quite a bit removed from Bing Crosby. He's been deceased since the late 1970s. But he's the precursor. <laughs> if you're listening to this in the future, we are not recording this contemporaneously with the life of Bing Crosby. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for the disclaimer, Ken. <laughs> Hand your grandmother a tissue. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's the precursor. <laughs> Bing Crosby <laughs> He is, he is literally the Frank Sinatra before Frank Sinatra existed. Frank Sinatra being an icon of the 20th century, yeah. so is Crosby. Mm-hmm. And he's got a lot of films in which he's just just so damn likable and charming. You can't help – I mean, from this, there's he's in the sequel the following year, Bells of St. Mary's, High Society, Robin and the Seven Hoods. Both of those films he's actually in opposite Frank Sinatra. He's in White Christmas, of course, Holiday Inn, and The Road Pictures with Bob Hope. He's Which one – is when he danced with Danny F and K. That's why Christmas. Okay. I was quoting yeah. uh Christmas yeah. vacation. He and Danny K and, and Rosemary Clooney and Vera Ellen in White Christmas. And then he's in Holiday Inn in nineteen forty two with uh, Fred Astaire. So he's got plenty of he he's one of those guys who appears with other huge names in musical and dance to a degree. You mentioned Danny Kay and Fred Astaire, obviously. Um but he's the driving force in all of those movies. In the two movies, he's he's in, again, High Society, opposite Frank Sinatra. He's the star. Even Grace Kelly is second billed to Bing Crosby in that film. And in Robin and the Seven Hoods, he's 
the veteran of the group with Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack. He's the he's kind of the the older, more respected uh, player in the movie. Um, so he's got longevity. He's he's been performing and he's been very popular since the 30s. By 1944, he's on top and he will be throughout the 1940s. He's the biggest star. He's the biggest uh, earner uh, in Hollywood and in music. You can't overstate how important he is to the success of this movie. I was surprised how much I liked him in the movie because I knew that he was a singer. So I thought he was just kind of dropped in to sing and was everybody's grandma's heartthrob. I, I don't necessarily think that he's great, like gives a great performance in this movie. And I think part of it, we as we can get into later, is just that um, the character has no flaws. Yeah, there's nothing That's wrong right. with Father yeah. Chuck at all. He's just nope. cool at everything. Um, but there's a certain um, Bing Crosby. I, I looked up had 106 film credits, which surprised me. And according to IMDb trivia, so this is probably made up. Um, he was on the links the morning of the Oscars, and they went and got him and were like, "Dude, like you'd actually go." He's like, "I'm not a good actor. I'm not going to win." Um, wins. There's something about his performance, I think, that is, I don't know if self-effacing is the word, but he's like a little bit uncomfortable, maybe around other actors. It seems that way, like he's a little bit out of his element. And I think that really lends itself nicely to the context of what Father Chuck is growing through, where he's like, look, I know I'm good at what I'm doing, but like I'm in a different setting now. And so I'm kind of feeling things out. And exactly. I'm feeling this out. I'm a little bit out of my context. I'm from a different place. But watch me just charm the pants off everybody. And so I think that I think that works nicely um, in this film, connecting those two. This was this this was the first year of 1944 was the first of five years where he was the number one movie star in Hollywood from 1944 to 1948. He was the number one star in Hollywood. Right. And, and he, starting here. He's, he's regularly in among the top. So even outside, when he's not number one, those five. There were 15 years when he was in the top 10. Yeah, he's starting in 1934, and then non-consecutive years through 1954. 15 of those years, he was in the top 10. And and it is a little surprising. I mean, I like Bing Crosby. I like him a lot, but I don't like him because he's a great actor. And to your point, TJ, um, I think this the 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 way the film was produced also kind of helps him out there. Um, Leo McCary, the director of the film, who I want to talk a little bit more in depth later on, he was big into improvisation, and he was constantly changing the script. He was constantly changing dialogue, even while they were shooting. And so, on any given day, he's allowing, let's say, Bing Crosby and Barry Fitzgerald in a given scene to kind of act a little more naturally, kind of react to one another more so than have to rely so heavily on whatever's on the paper. So it does allow Bing Crosby, I think, a little more freedom to be able to not necessarily have to act as much, have to memorize as much, and have to get into a certain character. I was thinking that. He can kind of be Father Bing Crosby, in other words. Like, he, he's not really playing a guy. He's playing Bing Crosby. And, and I think that approach... Um... While, while not like necessarily obvious on film, works really nicely with McCary's otherwise classical Hollywood approach, which is sort of the, uh, it can look a little bit like canned theater. You know, you've got like the American three-fourths shot, somewhat longer takes, shot reverse shot, nothing terribly complicated there. Clearly sound stages, you know, things like that. Um, so it's very classic Hollywood in that sense. But what I was really surprised about with this film that I liked 
was the, it did feel like there was a freshness to the sentimentality of it. And I don't mean yeah. necessarily like the, the, the weepiness, but kind of the warmth of emotions between characters that didn't feel canned, that didn't yep. feel really stagey. And I, I wonder if a lot of that didn't come from the improvisational aspect that you were speaking about. Well, I just wanted to note that I, I agree that it, it does feel like Bing Crosby's performance is just kind of him being Father Bing Crosby. And I should say that, like, I don't really have much of a relationship to Bing Crosby. I've seen this and I saw Holiday Inn several years ago once. So, like, I don't I, I don't really know what Bing Crosby is like, but I can just kind of tell that he's, like, a little bit more naturalistic here. Or at least he, he, seems, he seems like he's putting on less of a characterization, characterization than the performers around him. So, TJ, I think it's kind of what you were just saying, basically, or you were both just saying that, like, you know, Father Fitzgibbon seems like he's acting and, you know, uh, Carol James seems like she's acting or Gene Heather, whatever the actress name is. And, like, he kind of just seems like he's, like, you know, being himself, you know, and, like, that kind of goes well with the character because he is, like, this easygoing, like, warm, welcoming guy and, like, he kind of gets along with everyone and, like, I don't know, but it doesn't seem, it, it doesn't seem like he's putting on as much of a characterization as everybody else around him is. It's. I think I, I think a lot of it when you're watching this film, it's the way he. I'll, I'll. This isn't necessarily the right way to put it, but I think it summarizes what I'm trying to get at. The way he reaches out to his fellow actors in the film, the way he reaches out to other characters, the way he interacts with the boys, the way he interacts with Carol James, the way he interacts with Fitzgibbons, and uh, Father Timothy, his buddy, and um, and and Jenny, the opera singer. He's just kind of reaching out and, and trying to touch them in a normal, everyday interaction kind of way. It's a very human level of, of interaction between characters. He's recognizing when somebody like Carol James, who's brought in, we first we were talking about her, she's played by Jean Heather. We mentioned um, Jean uh, playing daughter, Lola, in Double Indemnity. So here she is again in another 1944 film. Oh! Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, right. I didn't connect those dots until you yeah, just connected same, them for me. Actress. That's embarrassing. And here she is again, and she's playing, um, what is she, like 17, right? She's just run away. Just 18. turned 18. Just she's 18. She, they, that's right, she's 18. They do they do emphasize she's 18. She's, she's run away from home, and a police officer brings her to the rectory because she's st- she was standing on a corner, a street corner. How dare she? Yes, how dare she? The, Scandalous. The, 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 <laughs> you must be a whore. <laughs> the contemptuous Mrs. Kimp, Quimp um, commented to the police officer there was a woman. By the way, she's dressed really nicely. Like, she's dressed like just a lovely kind of outfit. Whores like, dress nice in the 40s, Ken. Yeah. It's a better time. <laughs> anyway, point being, police officer brings her to the rectory and... Uh, he kind of sees through her immediately. The fact that she's not obviously out. You mean Father O'Malley? Yes, that's what I mean. Not the police yeah. officer, but Father Chuck. We'll call him Father Chuck or Father O'Malley, however you want to refer to him. Bing Crosby, in, in, a, in a sense. He sees right through her. The fact that she's she's kind of playing it up. She's playing. She's pretending to be more mature. She's putting on airs um, than she really is. She's just a runaway. And the fact is she's got no place to go. And she's she's maybe getting to the point where the concern is she might become desperate, but at no point do you actually suspect that she's probably going to actually do something like that. He's 
he can sense. There's a slight illusion as she leaves the scene, though. She's, you know, she says, like, I'll get by or something like that. Well, she says, oh, yeah. And, and, and he, She's... he pulls her aside and says, what do you mean by that? Like, <laughs> you know, which and we see a little bit of that where she does use it later in the sense that she manages to to get an apartment. She manages to work out a deal with Ted Haynes Jr. on her apartment later. Uh, because the she's mortgage the lender's girl. son, the church mortgage lender's son. Yes, yes, he's the he's the evil church, the church mortgage lender, the heel. Yeah, as he calls himself, basically. Um, played by Gene. Yeah, the, the mortgage lender is played by Gene Lockhart, who's another great character actor of the era. Um, but yeah, she's she's willing to play to her her assets, we'll say. Um, but at the same time, she's still she's still kind of wet behind the ears. She's still very youthful and she really doesn't know what the world has to offer she and she's playing it up she's pretending to be more mature than she really is and she wants to be a singer but apparently isn't a very good singer because this is where we get her first singing scene by the way yes she's yeah tj's dancing the way that she dances as she sings you can't sing well when you move your hands (laughs) yeah she father o'malley gives her some pointers and uh Helps her out. He not only gives he not only gives her pointers. This is one of his strengths in the movie from a comedy ask, comedy standpoint. Um, Bing Crosby is pretty good with the um, the one take or the the, the reaction shots. Um, yeah, he's doing a lot with his face, and that's where the comedy plays in. Um, and he's he's very good at it, but he he does it a lot in this movie. My favorite line in the movie is the second scene when we first meet him. And they, the kids hit a baseball into a guy's window and he like, Father Manley asks the ball back and the guy throws it instead of giving it back. <laughs> and Bing Crosby says, you even throw like an atheist, which that was really funny. Yeah, the, the grouchy, the grouchy man in that scene played by Porter Hall, who played Mr. Jackson in Double Indemnity. Um, who was he? Who's Mr. Jackson? Double he's the witness on the train. Uh, and I mentioned that, that guy sucks. I mentioned in that episode <laughs> he sucks in both movies. <laughs> well, I mentioned in that episode that he's playing a much more upbeat character than he usually plays in Double Indemnity. Here, he's playing a character that I'm familiar with. He always plays these type of guys, assholes, rude, atheist assholes. Yes, this is this is Porter Hall as I as I'm familiar with him. And if you've seen most of Porter Hall, many movies with Porter Hall in them, is like, he's always playing one of these small roles like this. But yes, here he is again. Um, and yeah. His, uh, by the way, is that like, I, I just, I wonder, I would ask, I asked my grandmother this one time, is that actually how people would react back in the day? Like kids are playing stickball in the street. They hit a ball in through the window. The kids all scatter. The guy gets uppity and angry with the, the priest. With a priest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was surprised how he was, he, he was treated a lot in those early scenes, even by Mrs. Quimp. Yes, well, yeah. She's yeah. this is the new priest in her parish, and she's yeah. treating him with she's treating him with yeah. kind of a. You don't disdain. know where the church is. That's not a very good start, is it, Father? <laughs> Shut up, Mrs. Quimp. I know. I was... Shut the fuck up. <laughs> what did um What did your grandma say when you asked her about people being that mean to the priest in the forties? Uh, she she said that they're, that they're playing they're playing that up in the movie. She didn't recall oh, people okay. being particularly to priests. She emphasized you would oh. never people were never would never treat a priest that way. I, I think I, I, with Mrs. Quimp, put something together of, you guys remember in The Departed, The Departed, when, yes. and Alec Baldwin yeah, goes, yeah. yes, uh, you know, so-and-so, this Irish guy, his mother's straight out of going my way. 
I never quite got that, and now I'm like, oh, it's got to be Mister. It's got to be Mrs. Quinn, right? She's straight out of going my way. (laughs) I didn't know that. I didn't put that together until you just said it just now. There we go. And that concludes this discussion. Uh, (laughs) Honestly, worth having seen this movie just so I get. (laughs) There you go, everybody. Now turn. Everybody, pause. Go watch The Departed because we're going to spend the rest of the episode talking about. Scorsese in the part, right? No? You don't want to? No. Last on photograph. <laughs> okay. Well, then, when you're talking about the, the, the genuine nature, I think, of, of Bing Crosby's performance, and I think the improvisation, we were talking about how it lends itself to a film like this, um, I mentioned her earlier, but Risa Stevens, who plays Jenny in this film, um, her relationship, the character of Jenny and the character of Father Chuck, their relationship is probably my favorite in the film because in both cases you have singers who are not known for their screen acting um in in the case of uh, Riza stevens she didn't really like making movies she didn't really like screen performances she preferred to be on stage crosby obviously enjoyed being on film but he's primarily a singer um here they are having to play actors and both of them i think have some really strong moments particularly Riza stevens i'm not sure that you can do much better than she does in um portraying love or adoration because when we first meet her she runs into father chuck like on the street turns out they're old friends from like high school back in east st louis um they've obviously gone gone their way gone their own ways um she's traveled all over europe uh with with opera companies he's become a priest and he used to write her and before going into the seminary he's he apparently wrote her a letter explaining he was going to the seminary she never got that letter and so she's surprised to find out he is a priest. And the moment she finds out is after she's been talking to him through a door in her dressing room because yeah. she's got a, a sitting, like she's got a sitting room a and she's got her actual changing room. And while she's well, in, first when he when he when he first walks up, he's wearing a coat. Yes, so she can't see correct. Yeah, he's he's covering. So she says, "Chuck, how are?" She calls him Chuck. Yeah. Chuck, how are you? Good to see you after all these years. Blah 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 blah. And then she goes into her dressing room and talks to him through the door. Yes, she's she's talking to him through the door, and she's talking. She's basically chastising him for not having written in a while. Um, he's explaining, "Oh, well, I I thought you got my last letter," and she's like, "No, I I don't think I did." And another guy comes in, one of her colleagues at the opera. There's a funny moment where she <laughs> introduces this guy to her friend Chuck, who's clearly a priest. So the guy's put off and at by this the point. His, his jacket is off, yes. so you can see the collar. The guy's, the guy's like Chuck. Yeah, the guy's thrown off, okay. visibly thrown off. Yeah. But when she finally opens the door to confront him, the look on Riza Stevens' face is perfect. She she goes through several different emotions good, yeah. in one moment, include from from shock, a bit of regret, um, to kind of a a, a sudden, understanding, a, yeah, realization, yeah, realization yeah. and still immense love. Like this is a guy. Yeah. The suggestion is that she probably had a crush on on Father Chuck. Yeah, I was mad at you for not ever writing me back, but now everything makes sense to me now. And I understand, but I also am sad about missing out on a potential love, but like I get it now. Yes. That that kind of all plays out on her face in like 2 or 3 seconds. She's like, "Father, what a waste." Yeah. <laughs> well, it's 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 also a bittersweet element to her character because later on when they're in the basement and she's perf- she's she's come to visit him and wa- listen to the choir of boys, of per- parish boys sing. And while she's singing Ave Maria, several times, she actually just a couple times, she d- takes a quick momentary glance 
over at Bing Crosby sitting at the piano. And again, it's this look of just total adoration that I'm not sure an actor can really, like it has, there has to be some level of genuineness, some level of, of experience there. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure how close Risa Stevens and Bing Crosby were in real life, but clearly uh, they're friendly, or at the very least, she holds him in very high esteem. And I think the fact that they are not necessarily the most brilliant actors plays really well with these characters, because again, there's a sincerity here that I think you'd be missing if you're actively trying to perform for the camera. Um, so it benefits the film in that in that regard. Um, wherever you've got actors in the movie who aren't going too too far, like let's say Carol James, who is trying actively to play an 18-year-old pretending to be older than she is, um, more mature than she is, um, or even Ted Haynes Jr., who's I guess trying to be kind of a, he's kind of trying to be a bit of a, a, a cad early on in the film. Early on, yeah. I mean, he, he works for the Knickerbocker insurance or whatever, the mortgage company, right. the Knickerbocker mortgage company for his dad. So like, but he is also like the guy being like, hey, dad, do you really want to foreclose on a right. church? Yeah. And his dad's like, yes. <laughs> yes, I do, son. But This is what we do. Thanks for asking. Cad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will double down on this. Um. Well, and while we're talking about uh, the characters, I guess let's talk uh, next or briefly about uh, Barry Fitzgerald as Father Fitzgibbons, because um, this is a character. This is a movie heavily driven by the characters that occupy the the story, and the second the, the second most important character in the film after Bing Crosby's father O'Malley is Father Fitzgibbons, Father Fitzgibbons, uh, a, a small older Irish uh, priest. Played by the great Barry Fitzgerald, um, most famous for either this film or probably like The Quiet Man, in which he plays um, the book. He's, he's the, the matchmaker and bookmaker in the village. Um, he's also the groundskeeper um, for Catherine Hepburn's aunt in Bringing a Baby with her and Cary Grant. Um, he's got a, a couple of really top-notch comedic performances in, in pretty big films of the era, but this is obviously his biggest role. Um, and... To your point earlier, uh, that Josh, I think the the fact that unlike Crosby, he's clearly acting. It, there is still, despite that fact, um, and I agree with you, he's definitely acting unlike Bing. Um, there's a charm to his character. The fact that he has, there's a clear charm that definitely ingratiates him to his audience, um, and I think he sells it as far as as. Most of the picture is concerned. He sells the idea of kind of a an obstinate, older, aging um, priest who's past his his past his era, past his time, and he needs kind of a, an injection of some kind of youthfulness into his life. Um, and, and I think it because he will not listen to Three Blind Mice. If there's one thing that pisses that guy off, right? it's Three Blind yes, Mice. Yes, how is <laughs> get that shit out of here? <laughs> when you listen to the lyrics of that song, I get kind of why maybe a priest in 1944 wouldn't like it, because it's kind of a violent song when you think about well, it. Also, the choir wasn't very good yet when they were singing that, so it, kind of, kind of, it sounded kind of shrill and shitty. No, but, I don't really blame him. That but his problem is clearly Three Blind Mice, and despite, yeah. like, that's that's the line that he draws, is Three Blind Mice. But it, it, it is good that he, he I think he's... He's initially very suspicious of Father O'Malley and like wondering why this new young priest is coming to the parish. Why the bishop sent this new young priest to the parish when, you know, Father Fitzgibbons has been there for 46 years. He built the parish effectively and um, he's won over by Bing Crosby. But like 
it doesn't take the whole movie to be won over, which I think is pretty essential because like otherwise he'd be kind of like if he's antagonistic towards Bing Crosby, the most charming man in the world, like that's going to be a tough sell for the audience, I yeah. think. But like he's won over fairly quickly. And it's funny you mentioned that, you know, he's like the old guy who needs like this young person to add some zhuzh to his life. There, there's a scene early on when he's first showing Bing Crosby around the church grounds and Bing Crosby like jumps over yes. a bush. To get to the church door, and then like 15, 20 minutes later, <laughs> Father Fitzgibbons is walking around the grounds by himself, and like kind of like Tries. lifts up a leg as if he's he wants to try to jump over the bush himself, but then doesn't because he's like, "There's no way I'm gonna make that." I like that. That's a good beat. I, like I appreciate, yeah, because I appreciate the little look around. He takes a look or check around, make sure nobody's yeah. watching. Yeah, nobody's watching. Yeah. <laughs> let me lift my leg. Let me kind of lunge. Nope, not gonna happen. I'm gonna try. And also, I think I, one of my favorite scenes is when he learns why yes. uh father Malley was sent there and it's because the bishop sent him there to take over his pastor and to uh really take that take saint dominic's away from father fitzgibbon and the senior talk you yeah, the senior talking about it's when he comes back he goes to meet with the, the bishop because he wants to get rid he wants to transfer o'malley right which is a scene we don't see right we see him leave to go talk to the bishop then we see him come back from talking to the bishop yeah, and, he's, and he comes back and he's talking to the housekeeper distraught. yeah and he's distraught, so he he does he he doesn't go out on like a bender. He just like goes out into the rain, yeah. and stays out all night. But there's no suggestion he's like drinking or getting into trouble or anything like that. But he um, eventually comes home like late at night, and like Father O'Malley waited up for him, and Father O'Malley puts him to bed and like gives him dinner and like pours booze for him, and like he has he has booze hidden in his bookcase behind a Ulysses S. Grant book, which I thought was good detail. In a in a in a in a lullaby box in a box that plays an Irish lullaby. Please don't go digging through my bookcase in my classroom. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I thought that was a really that was a really lovely scene, and that's like kind of when he he does fully come around on Father Malley, because you know as TJ said, Father Malley is flawless, so he of course uh, treats this situation with grace and kindness, and um, Father Fitzgibbons needs that. And once he sees that that's what Father O'Malley is about, he warms Father O'Malley and they, they share a drink together. They talk about Father Fitzgibbon's 90-year-old mother in Ireland. And um, it's a really lovely moment. It's one of the, one of the, one of the highlights of the movie, I think. And, and the way, I, what I really also like about, I agree with like everything you said there, but that kind of financial predicament that he's in because he takes himself so seriously as like a shepherd of the community that he's like, I've always, you know, when I got a little bit of extra money, I've been putting it away to go see my mom and then inevitably something happens. Yes when I'm a little bit ahead that then kind of puts me behind again, which of course is like a little bit of maybe a lot of bit of foreshadowing for where it goes later. But I found that to be um, very like relatable about the type of sacrifices that people like this, good people like this have to make um, for their communities and that they don't really like, you know, unlike other jobs, there's no clock out, right. you know? Um, and I think it, 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 this isn't like a it's a hard hard life to be a priest sort of movie, but it, it briefly kind of suggests some of those things, and I, I think a slightly sophisticated way. It in, yeah. it endears the audience to a character that at, at the beginning you're you're obviously you're in you're on Bing's side, right? You're, the audience is clearly liking Bing Crosby from the very beginning of the movie. It's Bing Crosby, and this character is introduced in the film to as, as being at odds with bing's character yes but the first scene in the movie is actually him talking to the mortgage lender 
So like the very first thing in the movie before we meet Bing Crosby is Father Fitzgibbons talking to Ted Haynes Sr. saying like you're gonna get foreclosed on. So like when we initially meet him, he's sympathetic to the audience because he's running the church that's gonna get foreclosed on. And then we meet Father O'Malley, and then we get Father O'Malley and Father Fitzgibbon. So like he's not like entirely the antagonist. No, no, no. So, like we're already sympathetic to him to the extent, but like we're definitely he's definitely not warmed by Bing Crosby immediately, and we are, so like we still like Father Fitzgibbons, but like we're like kind of we want him to like Bing Crosby, and eventually he does. You know, so he's not like the full on antagonist. I think that's important to know. Well, and I think what I mean by that is the sequence, both his returning from the bishop, which is a great sequence because Fitzgerald nails the the emotion on his face, the the yeah. emotion. The, he's 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 crushed. Yes, yeah. The clear fact that he realizes uh, this is it. This guy's not here to help me. He's here to basically replace me. Replace me. Yeah. And. And you can see on his face, but it's also the, it's this this combination of being distraught about that fact, but also acceptance. Like he's accepting that this is the next step. This is the natural evolution in, in the order of things. The younger guy is coming in, and he's the future. He's the next step. In order for the church to survive, they might need somebody like O'Malley, right? And he seems to accept that in that moment. And he goes out, as you mentioned, he goes out wandering in the rain, which. Just a great comedic bit. He's brought back actually by the local beat cop, and I love the fact. You contrast that with the fact that every time we get we see the beat cop showing up at the rectory, he's usually bringing the kids. He's showing up with either the two boys, um, Tony Scaponi and um, Hoyman, his friend Hoyman. Tony Scaponi. Yeah, Tony Scaponi and Tony Scaponi and Hoyman. This guy's name. And the cop brings them. The cop brings uh, Carol James. And the cop eventually shows up with Father Fitzgibbon. And it actually kind of chastises him and tells him to get in there. Like, go on into the go into the rectory. And Father Fitzgibbon's is like, you haven't been to church in 10 years, bitch. <laughs> 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 um, you know, and with with the, you know, the thing they put Fitzgibbon's in there. Um, I, I, I think, you know, I was really interested watching this of like the figure of priest throughout cinema and how that's changed. Um and in particular, thinking about the way in which priests around this time and before would have been kind of small cults of personality in their communities, parish priests didn't leave for a very long period of time. And so the parish sort of was their project, their family, their identity. And if you were to get replaced, it wasn't just this thing of like, you know, next CEO moves in. They don't have family. Right. Um, and everything that you were from sun up to sundown is sort of being, you know, taken away you're, you're being rendered obsolete in a lot of ways and i think it's interesting the way that this movie delicately but not directly begins to address the kind of winds of change that are starting to stir within the catholic church we're still 20 years ahead of vatican ii but right. this movie's kind of suggesting that, that those those winds are there um so i don't know something i was thinking well about yeah a, a movie that i was thinking about as i was watching this a very different movie is doubt yep john patrick mm. shanley's doubt which is what a what a fucking picture! One of the one of the better movies from the two thousands, I think. But TJ, don't make a face. It's <laughs> you made a face. Um, that actually takes place in nineteen sixty four, which makes it very much right at the end of Vatican Two. But like in that movie, uh, Meryl Streep playing Sister Aloysius and Phil Hoffman playing Father Flynn are both at odds because Sister Aloysius is old school and thinks the church needs to be like separated from its congregation. They're like you know, kind of a little more cold, detached, a little more like fire and brimstone kind of church idea. And then 
Phil Hoffman is more of a warm, congenial, familial relationship idea with the congregation. And he even says at one point, we should be friendlier. They should see us as members of their family, to which Meryl Streep says, but we're not members of their family. We're different. And like that, is, that is very like thinking about a pre versus post Vatican II church idea. And I think like, as you just said, TJ, this movie is also kind of like Father Fitzgibbon and Father O'Malley having two different like mindsets about how the church interacts with the community, you know. Father O'Malley being like warm, congenial, and welcoming. Very striking difference between um, Father O'Malley's relationship with youthful parishioners versus Father Flynn's relationship with youthful parishioners in doubt. Um, Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. Sure. Um, the time period, though, to your point, TJ, yeah, a priest is a uh, a person of trust and kind of it's it's a figurehead that one admires, usually in the neighborhood in the community. Um, even people who don't regularly go to church, um, they're still uh, going to respect the priest. Um, that that kind of it, let's use that as a segue then, because I do want to touch a little bit on Leo McCary's. Uh, not only what we talked earlier about his improvisation, his Roman Catholicism, which plays a huge part in this film, if no other reason than the fact that he decided to come up with the the treatment of the story. Based on his own Monsignor at his local parish uh, church in Beverly Hill, or excuse me, in Santa Monica. And it, it strikes me that if Leo McCary was as religious, as faithful as he was, um, is this a film that if made today, do we think this is like one of those faith-based movies that are increasingly becoming quite, quite popular or more frequent um, in 2023? We, we got... Films being produced um, by entities that may be thinking more um, Christian thoughts or, or, or their motivations are more religious-based. Um, is Going My Way a faith-based film, or is it using Catholicism more as a prop? Um, because I, I'm curious, how important do you think this film, or the Catholicism plays in this film? Certainly, the, pre, the, the, the main characters are priests, and it is not at all really criticizing the priests in the film, um, but I'm not sure that the, you'd walk away saying, oh, well, that's a very, very religious film. My analogy for this is going to be a movie that doesn't seem at all like it, so let me explain. Um, I think it's neither of those. I don't think it's like a faith-based Kirk Cameron movie, but I also, I wouldn't call Catholicism as a prop. I think even though the tones are very different, it's quite similar to something like First Reformed, where uh, the, per the the main character being a priest being a pastor is integral and essential to the message of the film, but I don't think it's moralizing. I, so I think the film, the director takes aspects of faith and in this case, Christian charity seriously, but I don't think of this as like a, um, you know, for lack of a better phrase, like a Sunday school sort of movie. Sure. Um, that's my answer to that. Yeah. I kind of agree with that, but, I think it's actually kind of like set dressing, not in like a disrespectful way, but I feel like the church in this movie functions just as a means to tell a story about community and a guy who regularly interacts with different members of the community. Like he, this could have just as easily been said at a school, I think, and he could be in like a new teacher. But then the, the only problem there is like he's more interacting with kids and not adults as much. And like having him be at a church lets him interact with all members, all ages, people. Um, but I think it's more about that than about, like, faith or anything like that. Like, I don't think faith comes up a ton, unless I'm missing something. What do you think? 
What do you think? I, I I agree. I don't think I don't think faith plays as big a role into it. I think to TJ's point, the Christian charity aspect certainly um, is. I think the bigger motivating aspect or or, or um, factor. And yet the, the the church is not saved by charity. The church is saved by capitalism paying for songs. Yes. Well, yeah, and uh, Fred from I Love Lucy. Uh, yes, but I, I think it's 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 less about faith. It's more about the role of institutions in the lives of a small community. Even the police we mentioned yeah. playing kind of a big role yeah, yeah, in this. Yeah. You mentioned William Frawley playing the uh, the music publisher. Um, that does before I forget uh, does I think introduce uh, a, we're going to create a, a have a, we have a new segment. Um, I'm I'm calling it, we can change the name later, but I want to call it a small but frank cameo. Because the in the scene in which William Frawley is actually at mass, and the collection basket comes around, and he has to stick a bunch of money because otherwise he'd look bad if he's got all the cash he's pulling out. He's going to put some in. He just decides to stick it all in. The guy carrying around the collection basket is a guy by the name of Franklin Farnham. It's the actor's name, Franklin Farnham. Uh, similar to to Best Flowers that I mentioned in the Double Indemnity episode, Franklin Farnham. A character actor, usually uncredited in films, holds the distinction of appearing in more Best Picture winners than any other actor mm. uh, in the history of the Oscars. So Franklin will be popping up again uh, in six other episodes at some point in the future because he is in a whopping seven Best Picture winners uh, during. Well, I'm his... assuming he'll be in more than just six episodes. I'm assuming he may be in. Some best picture not That's true. You're good. Runners, right? Good point. Yeah. He does. Yes, he does pop up in. He's not in as. Do you want to name the segment after Frank Farnham? Yes. So this, that's why I was. Okay. Yes. A small but Frank cameo. Exactly. It is. It is ordered. <laughs> so there it is. We'll, we'll see Frank again later. Um, before we wrap up, I do want to just ask. We mentioned earlier, obviously, the Frank, the, the or excuse me, the the not Frank Sinatra, but the Bing Crosby uh aspect of this film the fact that this is a movie star driven film without question if this film is made today or is it can it even be made today i i'm curious whether i feel like films that are movie star driven are not necessarily um the kind of movies we see regularly today there are very few actors who can carry it off first and foremost but the fact that this is a relatively small film it's not a big blockbuster action film it's a small picture that today would probably be more independent at most fox searchlight um do we see films like this and i'm not saying the musical aspect of it but are you going to see a movie that does this well at the box office and at the uh and during award season at the oscars and whatnot where it's basically just a vehicle for a big star that's a vehicle for a big star possibly yes but um I know you said not the musical aspect. I, I don't know that we can separate the musical aspect because I think that's the answer to no, this can't get made today because musicals that get made today have to be, I think like a lot of other genres, huge pre-existing, um, with the exception of La La Land, how many musicals are just like an original musical by so-and-so? No, you got Les Mis, you got The Color Purple, you've got, you know, um, they have to be Greatest existing showman. IPs, right? Was that was that one? The or Greatest was that, Showman. Was that an original one? That was an original. Oh, I didn't know I that. Thought. Okay, I could be wrong. Well, I stand corrected. Um, but well, this, I mean, that's one example. But your, your your point stands. This tone doesn't exist anymore. Um, that's true. With with few exceptions, I was think I was looking back. So I'm like, what a kind of different time that this one best picture. And 
maybe like tone wise something like coda is close perhaps um like maybe like a finding neverland if we're trying to find other equivalents within like what gets nominated um for best picture otherwise like whoo this this tone doesn't really exist anymore no Um, it, it does well to to that point. I don't think I, I think many uh, the tone in many of the films of the era back in the that is the nineteen early nineteen forties um, doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, this is a film that's being released in I think it's late May initially in nineteen forty four. So this is playing in theaters during during D Day. Um, I think that's important to note. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's important exactly. to note for how successful it is. Yeah. This film is playing during World War Two. People have loved ones overseas. Um, and this is an escape. It doesn't completely ignore the war because um, the sub story involving Carol and Ted Haynes Jr. does give us a little bit of a reference to the ongoing um, the war overseas because Ted Haynes decides to stop being a greedy moneylender um, with his dad and decides to enlist and go off to war after having just married Carol, um, which. I gotta say that whole story just doesn't work for me, and I'm not sure that I'm not sure. I think part of part of the reason that story exists is just so they can maybe have that rushed moment where the dad storms in on them, finds out that they've actually eloped. Effectively, they've been hiding out in this apartment for two weeks, and then suddenly, within a matter of a scene, he goes in the other room, gets dressed, and then walks out the door to go to war. <laughs> it's very. <laughs> <laughs> and then he gets injured. He gets injured in Africa because one of his soldiers ran him over with a jeep. Yes, we got, I thought he got, got syphilis in Africa. <laughs> no, that no, was that was Meryl Meryl Streep. Streep. Um, no, that's yeah. That's the other thing. At the end of the film, there's this inject a little humor to to get him back back home. In other words, that oh yeah, the guy went off to war. Oh yeah, he was injured. How did he get injured? He was run over by one of his co- one of his his. Army mates. Colleagues, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, that is kind of funny. It is a little funny, which is, I'm not sure that that's entirely appropriate, but um, <laughs> nonetheless, the film can't totally ignore the war, so it's got this like subplot, this little sub-story going on, side story, yeah. if you will. Um, and yeah, you got one of the characters who goes off to war, but otherwise the rest of the film is quite escapist in, in feeling. It is. Can I read the letterboxed reviews? Sure. I think this is an appropriate time. Okay. Um, a lot of them kind of allude to that. And like, this was like a, a nice sweet movie that people just like kind of needed at the time, possibly um, <laughs> a three and a half star review from David Sims host co-host of the blank check podcast simply says Ted Lasso, but with a singing priest, <laughs> which that was funny, which I also don't think is quite true, but you kind of see it. It's a guy from somewhere else coming to this community and like just kind of brightening brightening everyone's life that's that is what ted lasso is i haven't um, seen ted lasso but if that, that that's a really interesting thing to think about because i just tried to make the argument that the tone doesn't exist anymore but maybe it does and it exists on apple tv plus i don't know if i would call it the same tone i think ted lasso has a little bit more bite to it okay okay than this does okay yeah okay uh, another letterbox review. This one, three stars. Um, this is just a part of a large review. It's obvious it won Best Picture because it was a feel-good film during World War II. It's a perfect time capsule of the time. A two-and-a-half-star review. A movie to scandalize no one and comfort everyone. Going my way is a bit like watching Bing Crosby sing Paint to Dry. Which I think is a little... <laughs> I think it's underselling it a yeah. little bit. 
not a ton, but a little bit. And then uh, this one just made me laugh. A three-star review that says, one look at hot priest being Crosby in his little cardigan, and I immediately decide that Christian war propaganda films are good and smart, actually. <laughs> did, did you get war propaganda out of this? I was going to say, I didn't really get No, prop- I yeah. definitely did not. I mean, let's revisit that but conversation notice, next week. Holy shit. If you notice those reviews I read, two and a half stars, three and a half stars, three stars, three stars. It's all pretty, like, tepid. It's middle mm-hmm. of the road. Lukewarm. Like, it's like, this is a nice little movie. It's sweet. It's sentimental. But, like, you know. Okay. And I think you know. that's a, I think that's an excellent way to kind of summarize the reality of why this does so well at the Oscars, why it wins Best Picture. This yeah. is a time yeah. where the studios yeah. are using the Oscars as a way to promote their films. Paramount is definitely pushing this movie. It's very popular because it offends exactly no one. It's universally pleasing. Everyone likes Bing Crosby. It's a charming little movie. It, it It's not a bad movie. It's just not particularly great or special. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a lovely but, little movie. But at the time, it seemed to be what people needed, and people really responded to it. Correct. Um, can, I, can I read I, – I, this is on the Wikipedia page. Can I read this little blurb from Variety's review? And the reason it amused me is because it just sounds so 1940s to me, <laughs> to the point that can – can I give it a, a 1940s newscaster voice? As oh, I read please it? do. Is please. that cool with you guys? Yes. Okay, ready? This is Variety's review, or a, a portion of Variety's review of uh, Going My Way. Bing Crosby gets a tailor-made role in Going My Way, with major assistance from Barry Fitzgerald and Rice Stevens. Click solidly to provide top-notch entertainment for wide audience appeal. Picture will hit hefty biz on all booking. Intimate scenes between Crosby and Fitzgerald dominate throughout, with both providing slick characterizations. Watch out for that Adolf Hitler, he's a bad egg. <laughs> I added that last part myself. That would, that would, be, that would be war propaganda. <laughs> there you go. What calling calling him a bad egg? <laughs> Just <laughs> uh, can I? I'm gonna I'm gonna take a turn and read something real quick. Um, this was Jean Renoir, the French film director, mm, said. Yeah, the rules of the game. Leo McCary understood people better than anyone else in Hollywood. That facility enabled him to create warm, witty, sometimes zany comedies and gentle dramas. This was like surprisingly touching in parts. I thought. You know, we already mentioned the scene where the priest comes home and 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 O'Malley comforts him. Like I thought, this worked. The end really worked on me. I was just about to yes. say the yeah. two best. I think the 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 lullaby scene is the second best scene in the film. And the reason I say that is because it's authentic, and it sets up what I think is the best and most affecting scene in the film, which is the finale. It also telegraphs it pretty. I mean, sure. Bit. Like that that scene, that scene takes place an hour in, so like you know exactly how the movie's gonna end. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Once that scene happens. No question, but it still touches your heart when it does arrive. It does because for sure. Yeah. It absolutely. They get the right little old lady to play the role, and you get Barry Fitzgerald just acting like a little boy, rushing to his mother. Father Fitzgibbons' 90-year-old Irish mother comes to New York, right. and he sees her for the first time in decades. That's how the movie ends. Yeah. And it's Father O'Malley who facilitated her coming home from Ireland, which is a really, really, really lovely sequence. Yes, with the choir of boys singing the Irish lullaby. Which... <laughs> okay, quick case... note about that choir of boys. No way that that sound was coming from those children. <laughs> <laughs> first of all, the way they talk, but then that immediately he's just like, and then they're like, 
I was like, BS, BS. But I did like that scene too, though. The scene where he like instructs the, he takes oh, yeah. this, this group of rough, these, a squeaker, these group of street urchins. Yeah. yeah. He's, these roughneck boys who steal turkeys for fun. Hey, listen to the father. <laughs> yeah. He, he, that's, that's exactly what they say. Hey, father. He promises that he'll take them to Yankee Stadium to see the Yanks and Browns and instead takes them to the church basement and tr- <laughs> asks them to be a church choir. Um, tough sell, but uh, I really like that scene where he like teaches them chords and he mm-hmm. sings Silent Night. I mean, Bing Crosby singing Silent Night with a choir of boys backing him is probably going to play regardless <laughs> of the context, and it plays. I like that scene. It sounds good. Can we just, before we leave, just to emphasize the fact he, he he's getting the tickets to see the Yankees and Browns because it's suggested my understanding after all these times I've watched this movie that he used to work yes, out at the Browns he, facility. He yeah. apparently, yes. He apparently worked out with the Browns and his connections thus with the team, which totally smacks of, Oh shit. Okay. Priests are poor. How's he going to get tickets for all these boys to the baseball game? He worked out with the Browns. Got it. <laughs> well, he's, as you said, teaching, he's also the most perfect human being who's ever lived. Cause yeah. not only do they work out the Browns, not only is he always nice to everyone, not only does everybody love him, not only does he always do the right thing, he's also like an Im- incredible golfer. Yes. Like, could probably go on the PGA Tour if he wanted to be. Yeah. Chips in from, from the bunker. Yes. <laughs> I also love the scene where uh, Father O'Dowd like swings like six or seven times in the bunker and then, then says, comes up. Yeah, it was three. Yeah. <laughs> well, he lies. He says three, and then right. Fitzgibbons looks at him, and then he goes to five, and I'm like, hmm. You're still. You're, that's a couple. I don't even think it was there. five. No, yeah. I don't think so. Um, well, just the shot. The shot from like just above the bunker, and the sand just keeps shooting up, showing him missing. That's that's a good shot. That that made me laugh. Having been that person multiple times, I was like, oh, just take an eight, you know. <laughs> Build a snowman, buddy. Yep. I also yeah. appreciate the fact that they had they did slip a golfing scene into this movie. Bing Crosby being inf- an infamous golfer, so famous oh, that he, he actually died on a golf course. Oh, nice. Because this is why was Harrison Ford flying over him? <laughs> Hi oh <laughs> Get off my course. Don't play golf in Santa Monica. That might happen to you. <laughs> uh, this golf course, by the way, is actually in Toluca Lake. Josh, you might I don't know if you're familiar I with live, the area. I it's live close by. Yeah. It's the country club right behind the smokehouse. Oh, okay. That's where they're playing. It's more Burbank, isn't it? It's like I think officially the country club, I looked it up, is in Toluca Lake, but I don't know where the line is. Might it might be on one of the holes. I don't know. Here's how good of a golfer he is. He has for a little bit of money because he's going to go play so he can buy a golf ball. Yes. If I don't lose three, I had a brilliant round. <laughs> it's funny. I think in in the third Aladdin movie, I think there's a bit where the genie like acts as Bing Crosby and he's golfing in that yeah. bit. So huh. that makes sense that he was a big golfer. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know there were three Aladdin movies. Even, even the straight-to-video Aladdin, second Aladdin sequel acknowledges it. Because kids love Bing Crosby references. <laughs> so. Hey, man, that was my first exposure. That was my first exposure to Bing Crosby. You know what? I'm going to say Aladdin, Aladdin and King of Thieves, pretty good, actually. My Mine was Christmas Vacation. We'll have the hap, hap, happiest Christmas since... Bing Crosby dance with Danny F and K. <laughs> That's all I got on going my way. I think I've I've exhausted my my notes. And I think I think we've I think we've talked plenty on the film, um, given the fact that it's a okay. it's quick movie, and we've been talking for quite a it while is, now. I mean, it's two hours and six minutes. It it I don't know if it's a quick movie. It doesn't feel that long though. It's a, it's a you're right. It moves it moves it's pretty briskly. Yeah, I, even yeah, with I'll, episodes. I'll say just to, like collect my thoughts real quick. Um, 
I was not necessarily looking forward to this one because, like I said, it's a musical and it's schmaltzy. Um, and it was both of those things, but I found, even though it was kind of twee and maudlin, I did find that it won me over and I quickly was kind of like, okay, yeah, this is going to be twee and uncomplicated, but I'm here for it. And, you know, I, I don't think it's as good as the last two movies that we watched, but this is something that I would watch again. No. Definitely not as good as the last two movies. Um, I, I have no doubt when we get to the recap, we'll have to, we'll, we'll touch on this again. Um, it's definitely a departure from both Double Indemnity and Gaslight, both in tone and I think quality and substance. Um, that said, it's definitely schmaltz driven, not necessarily, uh, I think it's Vafala. What, what Bing Crosby suggests is the antithesis or the, the other, not schmaltz. Schmaltz isn't selling everyone's Vafala, which is apparently a term of the era that means nonsensical or silly. Um, this film is a little silly, but it's, it's more schmaltzy than it is Vafala. Uh, to, to his credit, he does deliver on the schmaltz rather than the silly and nonsensical. Um, Maybe next week we'll be begging for schmaltz because next week we have Since You Went Away? Yes, yeah, Since You've Been Gone, the Kelly Clarkson origin story. <laughs> which I'm seeing now is two hours and 52 minutes, it, which I am immediately displeased with. <laughs> it's a war picture. It's, a, it's, yes. it's definitely going to be a melodrama. And uh, it's David O'Selznick, though it is David O'Selznick uh, produced. Um, yes. That said, for the life of me, my goal is to remember the title at the beginning of next week's episode, and then after that, you are on your own, folks, because I can't promise I will remember the title. Um, I just Why? I can't. I just for the life of me, I keep forgetting the name of this this next movie. I keep calling it since you've been gone, or you can't take it with no. you. Literally anything connected to the title <laughs> since that you is were not away, the title. since you went away. <laughs> Shall we go? Shall we dance? The one, the one that got away. You because about like pop songs from the two thousands sung by female singers. Because you ain't here no more. Um, going my way. <laughs> going your way. We will be back All though right. next week with the next. Episode. All right. Follow us on Twitter at Serious Film PPL. Follow us on uh, TikTok at Serious Film People at Podcast. I think uh, Patreon. Blah, blah blah blah. You can email us seriousfilmpeople at gmail dot com, etc. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to our Going My Way episode. Bye-bye. See you next week. I'm sure that the way to say what I'd like to say will occur to me after you've gone. <laughs>